So when these new pump flange sizes came out and lactation consultants began experimenting with them, we found that many, many, many people need um, much smaller sizes than what we, uh, what comes with the pump at least. Okay. So most pumps come with like around a size 24 flange and often also a 27 or a 28, depending on the brand. Okay. Most people need something like a 17 millimeter really? size. Hi guys, I'm your host Megan Van Diepender and this is the Empowerhood Podcast. I am so happy to have you here. You know, motherhood is hard and we are going to talk about all of the hard things that just are not talked about enough. So buckle up and enjoy this episode. Hi Jillian. Hi Megan. <laughs> Thank you again for being here. So everyone out there listening, we have Jillian Carter here from Milk Matters and we are going to talk today about the ups and downs of feeding babies, all about breast milk and, you know, just putting some knowledge and advice out there and, you know, resources that any mom can use at any point in their breastfeeding journey. So I'm so excited for this. Um, Jillian, why don't you start us off and tell us a little about you? Who's Jillian? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me, Megan. I'm really excited to be here. I've been listening to your podcast and oh, I am you. so in love with it already and feeling like, um, yeah, this is information that we need to get out there. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So, yeah. So as Megan said, I'm Jillian Carter. I am a lactation consultant on IBCLC, so an international board certified lactation consultant. I'm the owner of Milk Matters Lactation which is a private practice um, lactation support service that offers, we offer home visit lactation support. We actually have seven lactation consultants on my team from Queens to Queensbury. So wow. uh, as far south as uh, Queens down the city and as far north as Queensbury. And nice. I actually live in uh, Cohoes, New York. So just okay. a little bit north of Albany. Nice. So, wow, that's huge. Seven people under yeah. you. That's a big business. Yeah. Yeah. I love that it's yeah. just like spreading all through New York, you know, just like the help. Um, I mean, I it's like so it's good. Control, but we're, we're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, Jillian, when did you start your business and like how did your motherhood journey bring you to this point in your life? Yeah. So, you know, I think that for a lot of lactation consultants, um, their lactation work starts with their own journey, their own breastfeeding experience. But that really wasn't the case for me. So for me, back in um, 2010, I was working at a uh, local hospital, St. Peter's Hospital in Albany, New York, um, as a postpartum nurse. So I started that job in 2010. And I was a postpartum nurse on night shift, I was supposed to be helping these moms with feeding their babies. And I had no idea what to do or how to help them at all. I really found myself like repeating what I heard other nurses tell the patients, which basically meant I was like telling everybody to drink a lot of water and didn't really know what else to say. <laughs> so <laughs> I heard about a training that was being offered locally. Um, so I signed up for that training and it was just a one week class with a test at the end. But that class uh, was just kind of basic breastfeeding support. Um, at the end, I was certified as a certified lactation counselor, a CLC, mm -hmm. um, which is like an entry-level certification for lactation support. And that class was a really great help to my work at the hospital. So I was still a postpartum nurse. I wasn't, um, you know, working on their lactation staff, but I was 
able to, um, you know, provide much better help, especially on night shift when the lactation consultants were not available at that time. Right. Um, and then through the a few years of working in that role, I was able to get enough clinical hours to qualify for the exam. So um, for to become an IBCLC. So once I had uh, my clinical hours, I took some additional coursework and then had to sit the boards and um, passed the boards and became an IBCLC. So that's the certification that I hold now. Okay. So uh, along the way in there, I did have a baby. Okay. Um, but my lactation work really started years before that. Um, it okay. was really just that I saw a need in the families that yeah. I was caring for on the postpartum unit. And I wanted to fill that need. Yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> That's huge. I mean, I definitely had that need, you know, when I had my daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And I love like all the stories that I've been hearing, you know, through the podcast and whatnot. A lot of the businesses come from, you know, women just recognizing that need in other women and, you know, turning it into a business and helping others. And I just, I love that. Like gives me goosebumps because I yeah. mean, I feel like we've all come from somewhere, whether we had our own struggles or saw other people struggle. And it, it's really great just to see that. Um being able to put more resources out there for women. Now, did it – so I guess with the two certifications, I'd love to clarify. So like mm-hmm. – so when people are looking for a lactation consultant, should they look for the higher certification or like what would you recommend? So yeah, there are different levels for different needs, right? So a CLC is totally equipped to do like a breastfeeding class, to do really, um, you know, some basic support. But anything that goes beyond the CLC scope of practice, they should be – than referring someone to an IBCLC. And if you already know that you have um, a a situation that's more unique, that you're not just looking for some general guidance, but that you're looking for uh, something related to a medical condition for yourself or your baby, um, then an IBCLC is probably better equipped. IBCLC is generally the the highest level of professional um, lactation support. So it's, it's recognized that way. Okay. All right. Thank you for clarifying that because I think yeah. that can be a little bit confusing. So confusing. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> when do you think is the best time to find your lactation consultant? Because I mean, I recommend like all my postpartum moms like get a lactation consultant um, just because yeah. I wish I had one. <laughs> I think it would have been so helpful for me. Um, what is it good to find one like before you're having the baby? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I really love it when clients are able to established care with me about Mm -hmm. two months prior to delivery. That gives us time. um, We do a prenatal consult and that's an opportunity to evaluate their medical history, see if there's any challenges that we can anticipate Mm -hmm. because sometimes sometimes there are some clues that we have from someone's medical history or something about um, how their anatomy is changing during pregnancy that can tell us something about what uh, challenges they may face after delivery. So if we can anticipate and then plan for that in advance, that, as you can imagine, is a huge help. <laughs> I know. Um, and then also during that prenatal consult, we would like talk about equipment, pumps. Um, if somebody anticipates they may need a nipple shield, we would talk through those things, how to use it properly. But the most valuable part of connecting ahead of time during pregnancy is really just that the client has access to their lactation consultant as soon as they're home from the hospital. So. Yes. Um, I'll usually ask clients to even send me a quick text when they're on their way to the hospital or when they're in labor or when, you know, like as soon as they get a chance. (laughs) um, Then uh, we typically set up that initial visit whenever possible for like the day after they come home from the hospital. So 
Um, I'm often seeing people on day three, four, or five of the baby's life. And that is a critical time. Days three, four, okay. five. Okay. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you, because so is that because that's when the milk comes in? Or like, right. okay. Yeah. So yeah. even though the baby's already nursing at the hospital mm-hmm. and whatnot, it doesn't really matter until they get home, like those two to three days after? Or what do you No, I mean, absolutely. The, the work that they're doing in the hospital helps too, but often there is lactation support there. Okay. And um, some problems don't show up in at the very first couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. So if we see on day three, four, or five that, um, you know, that may be a, a key time frame when the mother may be experiencing some nipple injuries and damage that may have happened in the hospital, we can see whether or not that's healing. Um, if they're having pain with a latch at that point, then we want to really dig into like what is causing this pain and, and how can we resolve it as quickly as possible. Um, the baby is kind of in an important stage there, days three, four, and five as well, because typically the mom's milk is changing on right about 72 hours after delivery. So three days out from delivery from colostrum to a more mature milk. And that shift is what we often think of as, you know, people often say, like the mom's milk comes in, right? So before that point, the baby's getting colostrum, the baby may be getting plenty to eat there, but this dramatic volume uh, uptick is, Mm. um, changes everything, kind of, you know? So the, there are a couple of things that we're looking for on days three, four, and five. One is, did that happen, right? Mm. So if we are on day three or four or five and the mom hasn't yet experienced that dramatic increase in volume, then that's something we want to pay very close attention to um, in terms of, is it coming at some point here or you know what's causing this delay? And we wanna be paying close attention to the baby because the baby's kind of built for uh, an increase in volume at day three. And if right. now we're on day four and that hasn't happened yet, the baby easily can get um, dehydrated. So okay. um, that could be, yeah. dehydration for a baby is very dangerous, but very easily solved. So, so okay. long as we're catching it, we're totally fine. And uh, so that's why that's a good time for us to stop them. So I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that the milk wouldn't come in. So that actually happens. Like, mm-hmm. so why is that? Yeah. So usually the milk volume should increase on at 72 hours. It's related to uh, hormones. Um, it's impacted much less than people often expect by how much breastfeeding the baby has done in those first few days. Okay. How frequently the baby feeds in the fir- first few days is going to help impact, is going to help support uh, adequate milk supply going forward, mm-hmm. but is less important for the timing of when the milk actually shows up. Okay. So um, that increase in milk volume should happen at 72 hours, just triggered by hormones. And if somebody experiences that they just didn't get that fullness at all, or they got a little bit of fullness and then it went away, or they got, you know, very slow, gradual increase in volume. Those things all could be caused by different things. So the dramatic increase all of a sudden over the course of a few hours, starting at 72 hours, that's what we would expect. Okay. Things that typically throw it off. The most common ones are high blood pressure during um, delivery or at the end of pregnancy or after delivery. Okay. Or um, uh, high blood loss. So in the example of high blood loss, you can imagine your body has to replenish that blood supply Mm -hmm. and the ingredients in breast milk and the ingredients in blood are actually pretty much the same. No way. I did not know that. That's amazing. 
it's a lot of water and it's, you know, various nutrients and things. And so if your body needs to make that choice of like, I've got to right. replenish the blood first and I will get around to making milk later. And it's, you know, not quite that simple, but you know, right. that's kind of a way that I think helps to to think of it that way okay yeah, yeah that makes sense so I mean when people have like a c-section or like a really traumatic birth would that happen more often in like those types of births than just a regular vaginal birth yeah it kind of depends in general with a c-section we expect a higher blood loss than with a vaginal delivery um so it, it can impact in that way also just depending on how much opportunity your body had to prepare for delivery mm-hmm. we sometimes see a difference between um a parent who labored up to the point of uh, pushing and then needed a C-section. Their body's a little bit more prepared because it went through all those stages. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody who had what we would call like a cold C-section, right? Meaning it was, yep, this is my third baby and they're all C-sections and this is the third one. And so we're just going to schedule it. And you you go in that morning and have the C-section, but your body didn't necessarily uh, go it didn't go through all of those actions. Yeah. To, okay. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that totally makes Sometimes sense. There's a delay from that. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. talking about breast milk and how you get the col- colostrum, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Um, colostrum, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then, so mm-hmm. I never knew this until like last year when I was, you know, just getting more educated on breastfeeding um, about the fore milk and the hind milk. Like I was yeah. never taught that, you know, my daughter's <laughs> almost eight. So this was like a while ago. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between these parts of our breast milk? Yeah, sure. So, so the terms colostrum, fore milk and hind milk are all just ways to describe breast milk. Okay. okay. So they're, they're kind of different types, but not, not even necessarily different types. Um, you might also hear people use the terms mature milk or tradition, uh, transitional milk. Um, it's all breast milk, but you can kind of think of it as like different recipes. Okay. okay. So the colostrum is the first recipe that your body is following. Um, starting during pregnancy, your body begins to produce colostrum, you know, pr- produce breast milk following the colostrum recipe. Okay. <laughs> and it's thick and it's sticky and it's uh, like very concentrated, very, very dense. Um, your body continues to use that recipe on all through the end of your pregnancy and then through the first few days after delivery. Um, And then what I just mentioned as the kind of timeline of milk coming in is usually about 72 hours after delivery. And um, at that point, your body is uh, changing the recipe. So sometimes people think of it as, oh no, what will happen if the colostrum runs out? before the milk comes in, right? And it doesn't okay. work that way. It's okay. not like there's a set amount of colostrum and then there's a gap and then the milk comes in. Okay. Rather, your body's continually producing breast milk and it's just following colostrum recipe for the first few days and then it's switching over to um, a mature milk recipe, but it actually kind of overlaps and, and produces this kind of transitional milk for a little bit in between. So that's um, what the parent experiences is that abrupt milk coming in. So that's colostrum, transitional milk and, and mature milk. Okay. Now, poor milk and hind milk is, <laughs> <laughs> has a little bit of drama around it because yes. it's the kind of, um, it's a topic that um, lactation consultants find valuable to know something about, but it easily becomes a topic that when the general public um, starts learning about poor milk and hind milk, there can sometimes be a lot of talk about it on the internet and it gets a, stirs up a lot of excitement and people start to be very concerned they have too much poor milk and not enough high milk or yes. they need to 
change the timing of their feeding in a way or the way that they switch sides in yes. order to get babies adequate, you know, babies the adequate amount of hind milk <laughs> instead of foremost, right? So you know, oh, what no, I'm this is about. perfect. Let's squash this. <laughs> Let's put this information out there so we can all understand. <laughs> yeah. So they're um they're really the the concept just to give people who've never heard of any of this, right? So the concept is that um the theory is that four milk is kind of four. So it's it's a beginning mm-hmm. of the um breastfeed and the hind milk comes at the end of the breastfeed and that the four milk um, in theory is uh, less fat dense. So meaning there's just, you know, there's less fat in it. It's much more watery, right? People mm-hmm. sometimes will call it skim milk. Okay. Okay. And then the, the hind milk that comes at the end of the feed is um, creamier and that has all the fat. Now okay. here's where the little piece of truth comes in in this. Okay. Okay. The, um, the way the breastfeeding works is your body has all these little milk ducts inside the breast they are like little pockets of milk you can picture it like upside down grapes okay Okay. and in each of the grapes it's producing milk now when your body first um when the baby begins to breastfeed at the start of the of an individual breastfeed and your body goes to release that milk it's initially releasing the milk that's um like most easily accessible to it right that flows most easily and so Mm -hmm. it just kind of uh the milk that comes out first is the more watery milk, I guess, right? The fat tends to stick to the inside of like each of those little grapes, okay? okay? And so the idea is that the the, less fatty milk would flow first and that the more fatty milk would kind of come toward the end after it's kind of forced to detach from the sides. Okay. That can be resolved entirely by doing a little bit of breast massage, okay? So. I always encourage my patients, not always, because there are times when it's actually not appropriate, but most of the time I encourage parents to do just a little bit of light breast massage, not digging in deep, yeah. just really lightly with their own hand, going around on their breast and um, encouraging the milk to flow by just doing a little bit of light compression. That typically resolves this issue of four milk and high milk entirely. Like them being separated. They're almost, then right. it just comes out together. Yeah, it just okay. kind of mixes it up. It helps those little fat globs to detach a little bit more easily so that it's all just there. Okay. Wow. The other issue with it is so simple. I <laughs> as they've tried to research this at times, they you know, you will see sometimes on the internet <clears throat> someone will post, here's the first five minutes of my pumping mm-hmm. session and the second five minutes of my pumping yes. session. They'll collect it in two separate bottles and you'll see that the fat in the second part of the yes. of the pumping session was so much thicker, right? Yes. And that is evidence that that is true for that person, Yes. but that is not necessarily typical. So when they tried to research this and did that exact study of saying, okay, we'll have you pump and then switch bottles and then pump the rest, does it make a difference? It's all over the place. So yes, there are some people that have fattier milk toward the end of the feed, uh, or at least toward the end of the pumping session. We can't really measure it specifically in a feed, so we're kind of guessing based on how it works with pumping. But that's not true of everybody. That's not true of even most people. It um, is really just sometimes the case. So it's something for a lactation consultant to be aware of in case a baby's showing symptoms of this. But very often when uh, the symptoms that people think of as associated with a formal kind milk imbalance, often those symptoms go along with lots of other things too. So it can okay. be- what would be symptoms of this? Like they're hungry more if they're not getting the fatty milk or? Well, sometimes um, if 
if somebody was like feeding just a little bit on each breast and limiting the feed, then a baby might not be growing well, they might be needing to feed more frequently. But I would expect in that case, the parent probably would just let baby stay on longer and <laughs> get enough right. anyway. Right. Um, more often, it has to do with like uh, green stools that um, so where we do see it as a problem is somebody that has a very high oversupply, meaning they're making way too much milk, and the baby is getting just uh, you know, say a, a quarter of the milk that's available to them in the breast and leaving all the rest behind, oh, right? So okay. if somebody was, their routine practice was they latched the baby, then they took the baby off after five minutes and then they pumped the rest of the milk out, mm -hmm. we might see that that baby, even though the mom has this huge milk supply, the baby might actually be getting just that um, milk that they get at the start of the feed. And then a lot of the fat is ending up in what she's pumping and storing or donating right. or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. I have heard it. that okay. about an oversupply and I did have questions mm -hmm. on here for you about it. So mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people, you know, or whenever we're going into having our, especially our first babies, we're like, you know, drinking all these special teas and like making sure oh. we're going to have like tons of breast milk is is that like a positive thing to have an overproduction or would you say no? I mean, it's really not. <laughs> okay. People expect what it would be, you know, it's the kind of thing that people anticipate would be like a nice problem to have. Right. So um, often when I'm talking with parents at the start, I might be giving them some guidance related to avoiding pumping for a period of time um, at the beginning to avoid inducing an oversupply. And there are times when, <clears throat> excuse me, there are times when I see a parent who looks at me when I say, you know, well, we want to make sure that you don't end up with an oversupply. And they kind of give me this look like, I mean, maybe I want an oversupply. Yes. Well, um, I mean, it's it's hard for a parent, which I'm sure you see, to not be able to have enough. Or like, I mean, yeah. I remember thinking of it as like gold. You know, I spilled a bottle one time and I like cried about it because yeah. I was like, I worked so hard for that, you know. So to have the oversupply and like always have that around and if you're going back right. to work it probably feels like a security blanket but that's why this oh is gosh, so interesting yeah. so it's not good no well I mean absolutely it can be really nice to like have that extra milk and know that it's always there and not have to worry about it but the problems that come up with it are um typically having recurrent plug ducts so an area of your breast that doesn't empty well mm -hmm. and sometimes mastitis which is a breast infection a breast infection that doesn't get treated um well or, or just you know that kind of gets out of hand develops into an abscess that can sometimes then require like surgical drainage mm -hmm. so it really can go um become a huge problem i mentioned already that like formal kind milk issue comes up sometimes when we have a very high oversupply and um, just in general, those are parents that are kind of uncomfortable all the time. Like they just, they make too much milk and even, you know, their baby starts to sleep a little bit longer at night and they find that like, oh wow, the baby can sleep seven hours, but then they find that they're waking up at, seven, at five hours because yeah, they have milk. to pump, right. you know, they have to do something to empty their breast because they're so uncomfortable. Right. So I generally try to help my parents to have a full supply. And if they have like, you know, one step, you know, on the higher end of a full mm. supply, that's lovely. Then it's a nice place to be. They can just um, pump an extra bottle anytime that they need to. And it, it certainly takes some of that pressure off, especially with return to work and that kind of thing. So that's generally what we're aiming for yeah. as the sweet spot. We don't that's a to. great spot to be. I mean, what okay. advice would you give to... Okay, so prenatal care, like what would you advise women to do to be able to have a full supply? There's not a whole lot to do prenatally. Sometimes we can see things prenatally that um, in a, a parent's 
uh, medical history that would indicate that they might be at increased risk for low supply. The biggest one would simply be if they had experienced low supply with a previous pregnancy. Um, so if they had a, a breastfeeding experience in the past and struggled to create enough milk at the time, then that's something that we want to look into very closely and see were these things that were caused by kind of external factors or mm -hmm. was it nothing that could be explained externally and really there's something anatomically that caused that. Okay. If that's the case and it's something physiological, then it's likely to um, be a problem again. And so that's something that we're just going to be much more aggressive about right from the start. Mostly the interventions that we do are things that have to wait until after delivery. So there's yeah. not really much to do during pregnancy. But it, we Because it's yeah. supply on demand, right? So like what, what should women do immediately after birth? I, I mean, I always hear... Yeah kind of different advice but obviously skin yeah. to skin is a great mm -hmm. thing to do now yeah, do you remember how long do you recommend doing that after birth so skin to skin has lots of benefits for the baby you put the baby right against your chest um with their chest bare right against your chest bare and um that helps the baby maintain appropriate temperature it helps them to regulate their breathing and it helps them to manage their blood sugar in that very first critical time okay. that hour especially after delivery so it can be really helpful to put the baby skin to skin it also has helps has benefits for breastfeeding um, and most of the time if you put a baby skin to skin and they're healthy and the mom's well and everybody's doing okay um, at the end of that first hour sometime by the end of the first hour of skin to skin time the baby will latch themselves on if they don't it can be helpful to leave them there let them remain skin to skin until they get a chance to breastfeed and finish that breastfeed on their own. Okay. Um, and some hospitals will have policies that really are supportive of leaving the baby undisturbed through that period of time because there are so many benefits to it. Okay. So skin to skin definitely helps with kind of getting off to a good start. Awesome. Um, and then just feeding the baby on cue, you know, so that whenever the baby asks to eat, you feed the baby. Each like period of breastfeeding breastfeeding can kind of be divided into these different like chunks of time okay and the guidance for each of them is really different so that's something in general that i think is confusing to parents is that mm. they'll hear somebody say never wake a sleeping baby yes. right but that is not at all appropriate guidance for the first for day two or three or four right 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 um, <laughs> And, you know, they'll hear somebody else say, you know, yeah, you can expect the baby has to feed every one hour and that's normal. That is normal sometimes. There are periods of time when it is okay for a baby to be feeding every one hour. Right. But if you have a one month old who's still feeding every one hour, that's something I want to look into a little bit more right. and see like, you know, why is, why is the baby needing to feed that frequently to get enough? So, right. um, so the, the, what's normal at one stage isn't necessarily normal all the time okay. and what's appropriate guidance for one stage isn't necessarily, um, helpful all the time so yeah that's, that's kind of wandering around your question a little bit but <laughs> <laughs> I a little bit. <laughs> yeah no I think that's um that's great advice because I mean obviously these babies are growing and changing so rapidly they're going to have different needs um yeah. so yeah that that makes a lot of sense now keeping up our supply well I mean mm -hmm. I don't have a supply but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um what would you recommend I mean obviously a healthy diet lots of water like what else would you recommend for women to be able to keep up their supply yeah so we have lots of tips and tricks for increasing supply if it dips. Um, the first step is always going to be to identify the reason why the milk supply is low. Okay. So um, I meet a lot of parents who are doing everything. They're doing extra pumping after special, you know, after breastfeeding. They're doing herbal supplements. They're doing teas. Mm. They're waking the baby to feed every two hours. 
Um, and then what it comes down to is something as simple as how their pump flange fits them or the settings that they're using on their pump or better understanding their baby's feeding cues. And it's just, <clears throat> it's such a shame when they have spent weeks, uh, you know, driving themselves bananas, doing mm -hmm. everything they could possibly find on um, the internet or, or guidance they could get from friends or family without ever really being able to identify what is actually going on. And that's the benefit of working with a lactation consultant right. that we're able to come in and say, okay, let's actually figure out what's causing yes. this before we start throwing solutions at it that might not at all be appropriate for that situation. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's the benefits and the cons of the internet. It's great. We have all yeah. this information, but it's also like a black hole and you don't know yeah. what is right for you. So that's why having yeah. a professional would be great. So I've heard yeah. you mention a couple times a flange um, for the pump. Now, yeah. what? how do you size someone for this like yeah. I know I definitely made this mistake mine was too small and it ended up uh -huh. like tearing my nipple a little bit it was awful oh, no. so like what what's your advice towards the flange because it sounds yeah. very important so so pump flanging flange sizing is something that we've learned a lot about in the lactation community over I, I think maybe the last four or five years um and largely it was helped by a company called Maymom that's um, I want to say in North Korea or South Korea. Um, I'm not sure where they're located. Maybe Taiwan. Anyway. Anyway, so they are <laughs> a company that makes smaller size flanges for uh, pumps. And there's other ones as well. Mini Supply is also available on um, Amazon. So when these new pump flange sizes came out and lactation consultants began experimenting with them, we found that many, many, many people need um, much smaller sizes than what we, uh, what comes with the pump at least. Okay. So most pumps come with like around a size 24 flange and often also a 27 or a 28, depending on the brand. Okay. Most people need something like a 17 millimeter really? size flange. Yeah. Maybe mine was too big then. <laughs> I so it's a very common mistake for people to try out one size of the flange and think, oh, this is too small because I can see the sides of my nipples rubbing on the inside of the tunnel, okay? Okay. And when we look at it, we, we what we can recognize often is that it's not actually the sides of the nipple rubbing against the tunnel, it's that the areola itself, so the dark part around the nipple is getting drawn into the tunnel of the pump flange, and that's what you're seeing rubbing. And it okay. will be very painful, and it will leave a ring around the nipple, and that's actually an indication that the flange is too big. So. Generally, so we've kind of gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. So now we've kind of like um, gotten to a place where most lactation consultants who are, are up in their practice would um, be sizing someone for really the smallest flange size that they can comfortably use. So right. anything that fits pretty snugly, it draws in only the nipple and not any of the areola. Okay. And wow. too. That yeah, yeah <laughs> that is total opposite of what it is. So that's amazing. I mean, that's great information to put out there. Cause yeah. I mean if if we're so why do you think the the companies that offer the pumps are putting these bigger flanges yeah. out there? Like why would they do that? So I mean for years and years, like I said, it's just in the last few years that we kind of that the lactation community has kind of figured this out. Mm. And as with most things, like, you know, one specialty will figure something out, but it takes a while for mass marketing to catch up. Okay. Um, there is one company, um, there are a couple, a couple companies now that are offering smaller sizes. So I think that Medela now is providing with their pumps instead of doing 24 and 20, uh, let's see, 24 and 27 is what they always used to do. And now they're doing 24 and 21 as okay. the two sizes that come standard with their pumps. 
So that's a good sign um, that yeah. they got down to twenty ones. But yeah. now, you know, we used to say twenty ones, and now we're saying like actually, I think more seventeens are the average. So. Yeah. Um, and there are, uh, you know, LV is also is another pump company, and I saw just recently on their site that they now have cushions for their pumps that allow it to go down to even smaller, as small as a fifteen millimeter flange size. Okay. So, um, yeah. So it's really not the size of the breasts then. It's like you said, so it's more of the areola and the nipple. That's what you, because I mean, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, well, my boobs are huge. Like I need a bigger flange, but that's not the case (laughs) you're saying. Yep. Yep. Okay. Wow. I love it. Breast size at all. Yeah. But often people do, they think like I have larger breasts, so I need to use the biggest size that's available for the flange, but it really comes down to only the diameter of the nipple that matters. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) I love it. Um, now I guess my next question is how do you know your baby is getting a full feed? Obviously we know like weight gain and whatnot, but I think like, you know, especially in my industry where it's, I'm a sleep consultant, you know, pediatric yeah. sleep, sleep consultant was like, make sure your baby's getting a full feed because if they're not getting yeah. a full feed, they're not going to sleep well. But right. it's like, how can people recognize this? Yeah. Well, it can be hard when I come out to a client's home to do a lactation consult we are going to weigh the baby before and after the feed to know exactly what they had to eat. So we can use that as, you know, an example of like one feed one time during my visit, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if the baby took, you know, two and a half ounces at that feed, that they get two and a half ounces at every other feed. Right. 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 So, um, but it at least gives us one data point so that we can at least use that as a marker. So if the mom tells me this is one of the best feeds the baby's ever done mm-hmm. and we're at two and a half ounces, then we can say, okay, that's kind of their max of what they can do. Versus if it's the baby only took one side, they're kind of sleepy, they're a little out of it. Right. Um, then, okay, so is this a, a bigger or smaller feed for that baby? Okay. Um, it, it can be hard to know exactly when the baby is, you know, exactly what the baby had to eat, but we really generally don't need to know what did the actual volume of milk uh, add up to for this baby. Mm-hmm. It usually can just be a matter of, uh, is the baby satisfied? Mm-hmm. So I generally will say I'd like a baby to feed five, at least five minutes on each breast, okay. right? That doesn't mean the mom takes the baby off. Mm-hmm. after five minutes, but simply if the baby's eating less than five minutes on each breast, that's something I want to look into more closely. Okay. And if the baby is taking longer than 45 minutes to finish the feed, they seem like they're still not really done. They haven't come off on their own. They're still sucking and it's 45 minutes in. That's mm-hmm. a baby that I want to look into a little bit more closely too and see yeah. why it's really taking so long. Um, so, you know, you can kind of do it generally based on a general sense of how long it takes your baby to eat. Um, I do usually prefer that the baby takes both sides unless we're intentionally trying to limit a mom's milk supply. Okay. Um, and usually the parent can feel the difference in their breasts that before versus after the feed yes. um, is much softer after the feed. Okay. Now, do you think each child is different in the way they eat or is it like all very similar? Yeah, no, I think if there's differences for every baby and every parent, you know, every baby yeah. and every parent is unique. Um, and that's, you know, where it can be really helpful to work with a lactation consultant right. to really customize a plan and not just rely on, you know, the general guidance that's out there. Okay. I mean, I always see that in my kiddos that I work with. So I was just curious yeah. if it goes the same for eating as well. Yeah. Um, now, cluster feeding. I feel like this comes mm-hmm. up a lot. Is this a real thing? Is it like, tell us about this. 
Absolutely. So yeah, so you, you hear the term cluster feeding a lot and people use it in different ways. So I want to kind of clarify mm. what I mean by cluster feeding and what I consider, what I usually use the term frequent feeding for. Okay. okay. So sometimes people will talk about cluster feeding as just the baby's feeding very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. The baby is kind of seeming unsatisfied and they're eating and an hour later they're eating again and a half an hour later they're eating again. Mm -hmm. um, that very, very frequent feeding is normal at some stages, but only at some very specific stages. So we often see this on day two of life when the baby's kind of learning how to feed. Um, they're often kind of getting in as many practice sessions as they can okay. in that um, time frame. So they're getting in lots and lots of feeding usually on day two. They uh, usually will continue that very frequent feeding until the mom's milk volume increases. So when the parent experiences that that fullness, that milk coming in at 72 hours, usually then it should kind of resolve. Now the baby gets a few good feeds and then realizes like, okay, it's not going away. I can calm down and I, I can feed every two or three hours and that can be fine. Right? Okay. The other time that we see frequent feeding is just during growth spurts. Um, so a baby may just feed especially frequently for a couple of days um, while they're doing some extra growing and then they'll return to their normal pattern after that. So all of those things I would consider to be frequent feeding and kind of the normal time frames for that. Cluster feeding is what the term I use to describe when a baby will, in the evening, do feeds close together for the purpose of allowing them to do a longer sleep stretch at night. Okay. So usually we'll see, you know, your sleep consultant, you know all about this, right? They yes. have to kind of tank up a little bit to get... Um, it like blows my mind how like intuitive they are with this. Yes. I, I love it. They know, right? They, they know. know. Yes. So you'll see this as the baby starts to feed, you know, wants to feed at 6 p.m. and then again at 7 and 8 and 9. And then, you know, so they may sleep feed every hour for about four hours and then they'll sleep for like five hours. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not appropriate. In my opinion, this is not appropriate for a baby that's less than four weeks old. Okay. Yes. So usually, they are not doing these longer sleep stretches in the first month. And then at about four weeks old or so, they do a growth spurt. After that growth spurt is when they're ready for cluster feeding. Okay. Cluster feeding is a good thing because cluster feeding is what makes it possible for those longer sleep stretches. Yes. Yeah. If your baby is a month old or older and is doing this very frequent feeding in the evening, but not doing any of those longer sleep stretches, that's a baby I want to look at more closely to see what is going on. Because the normal pattern I think would be to do frequent feeds for a short period of time each evening, you know, for a period of time each evening, and then like five hours or so. So that's cluster feeding. They clustered their feeds yes. together. Into the okay, I'm glad I had that right. I, I did. I mean, I did my research, but you know, I yeah, just feel yeah, like cluster that. feeding means a lot of different things, like you said, for different yeah. people. And I just think clarifying and putting that out there. And I think is... professionals use it differently too. I think some professionals will talk about like, oh, that second day cluster feeding. I'm like, well, not really cluster feeding. I mean, it's, you know, okay. Right. They're I just getting they, the hang yeah. of things. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. and I feel like after that four week mark too, they're starting to get a biological clock. They're starting to recognize the time a little bit differently so they can understand that, all right, mom really wants me to sleep at night. You know, she's getting a little frustrated with me. So <laughs> maybe I should eat a little bit more and, you know, try to sleep a little bit longer. I mean, kids are just so, so smart. It's, it's mind blowing. It really is. But yeah, I love that. Helpful. It can be helpful, I think, to know that that's normal and expected. And this is the timeline of it, because um, it allows parents to embrace it a little bit more when that cluster feeding is happening. 
Um, as opposed to sometimes parents will be like, I don't know, they want to feed very frequently. So I'm giving the pacifier, I'm trying to hold them off for the next feed, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But then they're missing the opportunity. Like the baby, if they allow the baby to feed very frequently, it allows them to do that longer right. sleep stretch. If they hold off the baby with the pacifier in those evening hours, you know, there are definitely times that pacifiers can be very appropriate to use. But if they're doing it sometimes in the, in the, that time when the baby is trying to tank up, then they're limiting how much the baby gets to eat in that time and the baby can't go a longer sleep stretch. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that time of day is so hard. I feel like, yeah. you know, it's, it's like we get that <laughs> extra five hours of sleep or four or five hours, but it's yeah. also like, you know, around five o'clock, six o'clock, especially if you have other children or it's just like you're exhausted by that time. You know, it's been a oh long day of feedings and, yeah. you know, naps and whatnot. It's such a hard time of day to be like, oh, now they want to eat every half an hour. Like what? But I guess if you kind of have that in the back of your head that, all right, they're, they're going to sleep a little bit longer. At least they're working towards that. You know, yes. it, it can give you a little hope, you know, in those yes. like really tough <laughs> moments. Um, I can't guarantee it. I can't promise for five hours. I know. It's coming. It's coming. It's soon. coming. Yeah. Do you feel like cluster feeding makes them a little bit more of an efficient eater, you know, as they're tanking up and eating? I don't know more? if it impacts the efficiency much. Usually for efficiency, I talk to parents about breast compression. So I mentioned that earlier with the um, hind milk and foremilk. Just doing some light breast compression during okay. the feed really can help a lot with getting a baby to empty the breast fairly quickly. And, you know, if this is baby number two and you've got the <clears throat> toddler running around, right. you can make a difference. Make it a little bit quicker. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so breastfeeding a baby. So obviously not everyone does that. But I yeah. saw a statistic that it said like 83% of people usually start off breastfeeding, but the time a baby is six months old, it drops down to like 24%. Like, why do you think this is? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the statistics specifically, but it's something like that for sure. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of parents, most parents that intend to breastfeed, plan to breastfeed, and then are often surprised by um, challenges that come up and are unprepared. Um, and that's no fault of their own. Um, even if they had prepared as well as they could, sometimes things don't go the way that they had prepared for. Yeah. Sometimes it's um, a matter of reaching out for support and just not finding that it's there. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, you know, I started this business because there was a total lack of uh, lactation support in the capital region. Yeah. There were um, some breastfeeding support groups and a couple of lactation consultants that would come to your home um, kind of somewhat informally, but um, there really wasn't much else. I'm happy to report that Milk Matters has been here now for four years, and we've seen a, a great increase in the number of lactation supporters available that will come to people's homes and take insurance and, you know, kind of have like, have this availability that just didn't exist um, yeah. just a few years ago. Um, but that's the biggest thing. When they, when they look into the research of like, why is this happening? Why aren't parents able to meet the goals that they set for themselves? It really comes back to support time and time again. So yeah. um, having more people available, having insurance cover lactation support consistently and reliably and knowing that parents can count on that, um, it makes all the difference. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely support and I think like determination on some level for the mom to just yeah. really stick through because it does get easier. I feel like in the mm -hmm. beginning, it's so hard, you know, those first couple months, oh, yeah. um, but it does get a lot, a lot easier. But yeah, that support 
I wish I had you. And I, I'm so happy to just see so much more support yeah. out there now. Just like as the years go on, it's like more and more and more. And just like us putting out these little things that maybe aren't talked about at a breastfeeding class, you know, it's just so helpful. And I hope yeah. it's encouraging too to people to just like continue on, keep doing it, yeah. reach out, get support. You know, there's so many people out there that want to help. Even if you're not in the New York area, you know, I'm sure you know more people out there yeah. too. Um, you all really over can the just US. Google lactation consultant near me and if somebody there you go perfect <laughs> yeah. and I think there are free groups as well right if they can't afford it or absolutely so there's um oftentimes the hospital will offer for patients to come back to the hospital to um, see their lactation consultant team there um so sometimes they can get some help that way or they can uh, meet with um a breastfeeding support group so there's the hospitals sometimes mm-hmm. offer a breastfeeding support group there's also the baby cafes so if you go yes. to, I think it's babycafeusa.org. I hope that's right. <laughs> it's something the, like that. Show. I'll find it and I'll link it below. But yes, I think yeah. you're right. Yes. And there's also the Leche League, which is another um, organization that's been around for decades. Um, and both of those usually uh, offer you know, free support to um, to families who are breastfeeding. So yeah. Amazing. And I thought, did you say that our insurance will cover mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Thing? So okay. we're in network with... Um, CDPHP, United Healthcare, and Aetna at this time. And there are other lactation consultants in this area that have um, uh, arrangements with other insurance companies to have additional. So generally, insurance should be covering um, lactation visits. And it's really just a matter of getting the right lactation consultant that is okay. uh, in network so that you're, you're okay uh, so really the, your advice office. would be search around and find someone that will cover yeah. okay wow that's amazing I mean I love seeing that because I know like I talked to an OT about you know like pelvic floor care yeah. after having a baby and they're trying to get that bill passed as well to have insurance cover you know you get pelvic floor care immediately after right. birth I want to do the same for sleep support because like no. you said you love when people come before they have the baby and if People came and talked to me before they had a baby, before they have sleep issues. No, it would never be, it would never be a problem. I know. know? So it's, it's hard though. I get it. You know, you don't reach out until you have a problem and that's just how we are. Um, But I'm hoping to really bring awareness to that and make changes with, you know, sleep as well. All of postpartum care because it it really is also, it's so important. It does. Yes. You really need a full team. Yeah. And it's such a bummer to me when I meet with a client who's like been struggling for months mm-hmm. and, you know, we get together and, and learn that like, you know, she re- she says, well, I couldn't afford it. And then I'm like, oh, you have CDPHP. All of your visits it. would be covered in full yeah. and there's no cost to you at all. And she's realizing then that she could have had help right. so much sooner, but she just wasn't aware of that benefit. CDPHP does a pretty good job of sending out information to their, okay. um, to their uh, clients, to their members to to make them aware of the benefits and not all insurance companies. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, so, I mean, even right now, everyone listening in, check your insurance, see if you have that, because you might not even know that you have that support. I also noticed it too, because I'm trying to get sleep support included in a lot of benefit packages, you know, through corporate businesses. And, you know, if you look at your corporate um, wellness package, a lot of them do um, supply breast support, breast milk support. So, I mean, I think it is out there. Maybe we're just not, you might not think to look, you know, within your insurance package. So, um, yeah, yeah definitely look at that. Cause it's be like really pushing awful. a little bit too. Sometimes people will tell me that they like call their insurance and the rep that they talk to is like, uh, no, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, no way. <laughs> and they actually have it. Yeah. So sometimes they just get misinformation oh, wow. if they look in one place. So 
it's a well, bummer. Well, it's kind to... of new, right? Like yeah. it hasn't always been supported by insurance companies. So um... it's since the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act was that two thousand and eight, ten, two thousand. Okay, I don't know, yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. there. Yeah, I feel like they should have caught up by now, but not everybody's up to speed. Yeah, that was a while ago, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I didn't know that. And my daughter was born in 2015. So, well, it's never too late to learn. So we're putting it out there now. (laughs) All right, Jillian. So what advice can you give to mamas out there right now that might be struggling? Yeah, I mean, really just getting the support that they need and as much as possible getting that support set up ahead of time, you know, um, and this is, this is tough for somebody who's in the crisis right now, but, um, for anybody that's pregnant, um, or that is expecting to become pregnant, uh, to be able to plan ahead for who are all the people that I'm going to need and really to build that whole support system out and not just count on like, well, my sister breastfed, so I'll just ask her, you know, right. <laughs> but the same goes for so many things. I, I mean, it's not even just about breastfeeding. It's it's about sleep and it's about, you know, PT and it's about pelvic floor and it's about, you know, all the things, right? Like we, we right. need support from professionals and from our friends and family and, um, you know, none of it can just get all put on our partners or something like that. So. Right. Right. And it's, I mean, it's great to have mom friends, but everyone is different, right? So it's Mm -hmm. like, you need that professional support to really support your unique needs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Because everybody's different. And your friend may say like, whatever you do, don't forget to get enough milk stash for your return to work. Right. Right. And then you're the one that ends up with the oversupply and you're like, ah, this is not what I needed to do. (laughs) I started pumping way too early. Right. Right. Or even thinking that an oversupply is good. I mean, which we learned today isn't always the case. So yeah. Yeah. Get your education and find that professional and support for sure. Awesome. So where can we find you, Jillian? So let's see. So I'm at uh, milkmattersny.com. Milk matters is all one word and a space in it. Um, So M-I-L-K-M-A-T-T-E-R-S-N-Y. Don't forget the N-Y.com. And it's the same on Instagram and on Facebook, Milk Matters NY. Awesome. All right. So I will link that all below. Thank you so much for all of the work that you do and for being here today. Well, thanks again for this opportunity. I enjoyed this. Yeah, it was so nice having you. I will be in touch soon. Okay. Thanks, Jillian. Bye.